Might say I'm understudy, might say I'm over the top, but there's like no green water, so the pop is overstocked. They say amazing grace. Hey, it's Tanya from Tanya's Take. Welcome. Welcome to longtime listeners, welcome to new listeners, and welcome to all listeners in between. Before I kick off this bonus podcast episode, which is amazing, a conversation with Mitchell Fain that I can't wait for you to hear, I wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping. Know that you can follow me at Tanya's Take on Instagram. And wherever you listen to the podcast, please be sure to subscribe or follow. Or if it's Apple Podcasts, please be sure to rate and review because it helps other people find the podcast. I also wanted to let you know that I am creating exclusive content over at Buy Me a Coffee. And for $3 a month, you will receive things like anti-racism educational content, original essays, excerpts from my work in progress, Black Girl in a White Suburb, cultural commentary, pop culture deep dives, comedy. I take requests. So if you are a member and you would like me to address something specific, I would do that. And also soon there's going to be some live opportunities for us to connect on Zoom, do some Q&As, and have some conversations in real time. The link to join and buy me a coffee is in the show notes of this episode. Here's the conversation with Mitchell Fain. Enjoy. Well, Mitchell, my friend, it's really good to see you. So good to see you. You know, it's so funny. We've just been talking here, kibitzing for like, 30 seconds into a couple minutes. And it's so uh, amazing how uh, incredibly comfortable it is to just sort of be like, hey, Tanya, what's up? Well, it's so true. And I, I feel I'm rather certain we've known each other in past lives. Oh, I agree. You might have even been siblings in another life. I, I, you know, my God, that's so true. And we'll talk more about that, which is partly why I um, wanted to talk to you on the podcast. Because the truth is, is I've been wanting to talk to you on the podcast um, for years. And, you know, the focus being race, culture, and the culture of race. Mm -hmm. And when I first started doing it, I really focused more on the educational anti-racism piece, which is important. And then there was a point where I was like, boy, I need to lean in in, into some joy, um, to just sort of be a living example of the revolution it is to be your authentic self as a black woman. And so we, I started to lean more into the pop culture aspect and um, around that time is when I was like, really wanting to jump in with you because we have very similar files in our brain in yes, terms of culture and the way mm -hmm. culture has impacted us. And um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick a pin in that because first I want to introduce everyone listening to my dear friend, Mitchell Fain. Mitchell Fain with a J in the middle, and I don't know what the J is for. It's for J, J-A-Y. No way. So that when you say my middle initial, you're also saying my middle name, which is good. Well, that's, that's convenient. But um, so I like to kick off these conversations talking about how I know the person I'm speaking to. And so um, harken back, Mitchell, about face, Jane Cho. Yes, yes, right. Yeah. And Ed Cross. And Ed Cross. So, um, but an official meeting, I don't know, although it could have been around the time we all were auditioning for The Gift. That is how Mitchell and I met. And Mitchell and I don't see nearly enough of each other, but we do connect on social media. Love his social media posts, in addition to an amazing series that he is a part of called The Queer View with La Alexandra Billings. Um, and this is where you both do deep dives on things that you love and are passionate about. Yes. And there is, and a lot of it has to do with gay history, gay icons. And it is really remarkable because I know in particular that a lot of young people listen. Yeah, because I guess because of Instagram. So we do have a remark, I get a remarkable amount of messages saying thank you from people in their teens or in their early 20s like young people and you know we're doing deep dives about Lola Falana yeah. who like even our generation doesn't remember Lola Falana right and so get to know that there's some kid out there who's like oh wait 
who's that? And then they're maybe going to do a little research or a little deep dive of their own. I love. Well, and they're so amazing. And first of all, Mitchell and Alex have been friends for ages. And, um, you know, to quote you both, I know you consider each other chosen family, your senses of humor, Mm -hmm. your reach in terms of being able to reference things. um, It's it's borderline. uh, It's borderline like um, uh, savant, like (laughs) the the ridiculous, the amount of knowledge we have about like Lucille Ball's career or like, you know, Patti LaBelle's career or Garland's career. It's, it, it reaches levels of maybe mania. (laughs) (laughs) But I understand it. Thank you. Well, that's, that's who this, that's who our thing is for. Exactly. I understand it. I revel it. I, in some ways, do the same thing on certain people and certain topics. And there's a real joy to it. But like I said, there's a real um, importance to it, I think, because it serves as a, um, what you're, I think, are creating is a time capsule. And it's a time capsule in particular for folks of our generation and the younger generation so that they aren't misunderstanding yes where they come from they're not misunderstanding and they're not missing the they're not missing the links mm-hmm. um you know one of our big things is uh, my my and alex's big thing is the the trajectory of queer icons and i don't mean necessarily that they the people are queer but that they have been embraced by the queer community and we talk about from judy garland to beyonce yes and what that says about the evolution of the queer community and like let's be clear that beyonce is the queen of all she surveys and the queen of the world but she got there because there were other powerful women who sang and danced and were loud and refused to step in behind and refused to be silenced and there were many that came before her and so my whole thing is like let's enjoy beyonce while also knowing where she came from or gaga for the same measure Exactly. And, you know, I have a 13 year old and uh, we the other day with my husband, we were having a conversation about what makes something iconic. And you and Alex had a similar conversation about what makes something queer, right? Or or camp. Camp. That's what it is. What makes something camp? And so it was a similar conversation. And so then they started throwing all these names of sort of contemporary popular celebrities to see if they sort of met the criteria. And they were under the impression, God love them, that Nicki Minaj was an icon. And because in their mind, they are innovating everything that they are doing, Nicki Minaj. When truth is, they're getting that from Lola Falana, you know, Beyonce and further back. Right. And yeah. so they threw that name out and we were like, no, I mean, maybe 30 years from here, she might be considered, right. but no, yeah. I don't even know if she's necessary. I don't know. I don't want to trash Nicki Minaj, but I don't know her work enough, but I'm like, has she actually done it something original that she didn't pull from Missy Elliott or from Mary J. Blige or, you know, yeah. and then just sort of like, yeah. Beyonce, she is that thing. She's the spirit of our time. And when we look back at this time, when we look at this incredible increase, which sort of takes us to what we're talking about, this sort of incredible moment we're in where femme has become powerful, black women have become um, having had more having more powerful voices, queerness having more powerful voices. She's she's the epicenter of it. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. she's a black woman who's bringing the queers along with her. Yeah, I think it is funny. Like, I don't even necessarily, I have a theory that Beyonce is actually not human. Like, I say the same thing, she's either an alien or a robot, because how can you be that perfect all the time? And just like the excellence. All the time. Because I, that's why I equate her, like her, her predecessor more closely to Barbara Streisand than I do to any um, that's interesting. other uh, performer meaning I mean black performers only because they've reached a kind of who the hell does she think she is because she's always perfect and always the best and it's fashion and it's movies and it's TV and it's film and it's activism. And it's like, I'm trying to think of anyone else who had, has had that. And it's, it's really Barbara. And I remember when Queen Latifah got, when Barbara got the Kennedy Center honors, Queen Latifah came out to present it as opposed to Liza Minnelli or Shirley MacLaine or Mm -hmm. sort of the Broadway divas who seem and Latifah came out and said, listen, Barbara changed the beauty paradigm mm. so that a, a plus-sized black woman could be the lead in a movie did not exist before Barbara and her nose said, I'm the lead. 
which takes us back to sidekicks, which is, you know, this like. Yes, it does. And uh, I appreciate you because. Wow. This is, yeah. <laughs> this is the uh, co-host of the queer view aspect that you did. You just helped me with my segue. So sidekicks, why we're here, part of why we're here. Uh, I did a play and it is a cast of, I can't believe I'm going to forget this. Five. Thank you. Is it five? It's small. It's, it's the two women, the husband. Three men, yeah, five. Guy, and then the, the gay friend. That is correct. Gay friend, Mitchell did I, quotation marks. I did, I did air quotes. Because what we're going to be talking about is when we see BIPOC, LGBTQIA characters in shows who are there for a very specific reason. It often shows up because the playwright, writer, whoever it is, is not um, LGBTQIA or BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, uh, or a person of color. And so you realize that this person is in this play for a very specific reason is about a group of friends who went to college together. The lead character's name is Jane. Her husband has passed away. And it's the rest of the friends, her best friend, Meryl, Meryl's husband, Tom. I was also blinking on your character's name and I didn't have a chance to go. Alan. Alan, thank you. Because I would put a pin in the idea that they're there for specific reasons. I actually think the problem that we'll eventually get to is that they're there for very general reasons. Well, and right, thank you, right, yes. So, um, so the, the premise of the story essentially is that Jane, um, cheats or she doesn't cheat. She has sex with Meryl's husband. She has sex with her best friend, husband, Tom, Tom has secretly been in love with Jane. And there's a scene where he finally reveals that to Jane and they have sex on the spot. And then the rest of the play is the negotiation of Meryl not knowing, and then Meryl finding out, and then essentially Jane coming to the terms that the death of her husband has sort of um, numbed her out and she sort of stopped experiencing life. They have a child and now she's sort of like, I'm back for this child who she hasn't been present for. And when I did this show, um, I remember early on in the rehearsal process, <laughs> we were still at the table doing table reads and I uh, asked everybody at the table, I'm like, why is Meryl Black? Also, what is Meryl's husband's name? This is terrible. I really did prep for this episode, but I forgot things like the names. Um, I also did this play just to, just to interject just for a second, because I want to I want to talk about the experience that you're having trying to remember these things. And it's not a diss of anybody. It's not a diss of the playwright. The reason why you're having I think you're having trouble remembering is that the play is vague. It try it. It, it is not, I don't think it's a fully successful play if the no. player wants, which is why I actually was called in to, to audition for the same part, for the, I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to play another vague gay friend. I, I've done it. I've done it. And, it. and the pushback against it, the pushback against what I found to be the generalities were not possible to explore because the script didn't allow no, it. The script didn't allow it. And um, the other random thing is that um, not only did I ask, why is this character Meryl Black? It is also offhandedly revealed that Jane's husband who died was Black. Do you remember that? Right. Yes, yes, and yes, so maybe. I posed this question in the rehearsal and nobody said a word. So. Um, Therein began the realization I had <laughs> that while the playwright not, may not have come up with a specific reason, well, uh, a conscious specific reason in terms of wanting to flesh something out or not make it vague, I think that um, I have a theory that often BIPOC um, LGBTQIA characters are used in a way to make the choices that the white characters make easier to digest. So that the fact that this lead character who is white, Jane, cheats on her best, cheats with her best friend's husband, right? Um, again, mm -hmm. she's not cheating because her husband's dead, but you know what I mean? Like Tom's the one right. who cheats, but she, she's complicit. She's complicit. Um, 
that it is easier for the audience to continue on the journey with Jane because her best friend, Meryl, is Black. And I have, um, there's a series of plays which um, verify this. There are a number of plays that were very popular, um, I don't know, like in the early 2000s that have a similar thing where they mm. have um, these characters, Black supporting characters that in a way, um, forgive the sins of the leads. And I think it also, and, and so I, and I have a theory why Alan was gay, um, which I wonder, I won't say till I, till I hear what, um, your experience was or thoughts were, or, you know, it sounds like you very much felt like this isn't a full character. I, yes, I, we talk, it was a lot of conversation. Oh, you talked about it. Yes, I, I, we talked about it a lot, and there was no resolution to it. Uh, it just came down to me saying, and I have to say, I loved, so there were, five, there were five of us in the cast, and I loved four-fifths of the cast. And I'll explain to you without dropping names, I'll explain to you eventually why it was only yeah. four-fifths. I, I think that you're right. I think that, I mean, it's goes, it goes back as far as, and now I'm using my like undergraduate degree as uh, uh, studying African-American literature, which was my undergraduate degree. Um, I didn't know that. Well, the, the term, um, and I apologize because this is a antiquated term, but it was the term that was used in literary circles was the magic Negro, right? This idea that there's this black character who we don't give them any other life uh, besides the, the, the attention to the lead white character's toil. Yep. And then they say something wise and deep, right? And I think that that then got attached to the queer best friend. It's yes. that similar thing where like the magic, it's, you know, it's what Queer Eye is based on. Yes. Right? It's like, so certainly the first series, it's like, um, we're, you'll love us because we're, we're, we're important. We, we, we'll come and we'll sprinkle magic fairy dust and we'll, we'll tell you the truth, girl, and we'll, we'll do that. Now, here's the reality. Outsider status, whether it's BIPOC or LGBTQ+, plus does give us some sort of wisdom, I think. I think that I'll, I'm going to take that and, and say that's true. But I'm tired of it having been being filtered through the, the voices of non-queer or non-Black people, right? So this playwright writes this play and includes these characters, but this person does not have our experience. And so the thing that I complained mostly about when I were in rehearsals for this play was I'm absolutely tired of queer characters being sexless. Queer characters are fine to come and give advice as long as there's no, Alan had no lover, there was no mention of a, Alan had no life outside of his devotion to solving the problems and hearing the problems of these two women friends. Now, if you're a straight white lady and you've got your best gaze, that's what you think we are. Yes. And if that's what you think we are, please leave us out of mm -hmm. your play because we actually have lives. We actually, uh, I don't know what kind of language I can use on this. Uh, on we we gay people fuck, and we actually fuck more than you do. And so to include a queer character who's sexless is um, a lie, and it's annoying because it just assumes that we have no other lives except waiting to help you out. And that's just not yeah, true. Yeah, I mean, Alan in particular is a depressed character. He's a de he's depressed. He's got this freakish ability to what is it that he could do? <laughs> right, he has like a he he can take anything. It's like a um, a mnemonic yeah. device, right? He can like memorize entirely. He can memorize things instantly because he has this like gift of mnemonic devices. I'm like, why? There's a, he has this monologue that's like his moment, and it's like, you know, you feel like as an actor. This is what's messed up about this play. As an actor, you feel like, oh, well, here's yep. my moment. Here's my mom. And I kept thinking all during, and I'm trying to give it because I'm an actor of integrity, which may sound pretentious, but I consider myself an actor of integrity. So I'm doing my homework. I'm figuring it out. And I could not, for the life of me, figure out what it had to do with Whoa, anything. It had nothing to do with anything. And so here I am putting my heart and my soul to try to make this real because, of course, that's what actors do, which is... Um, take words that aren't our own and make them seem like they are our own. And um, I, I, I found myself, that was a lot of our discussion. I'm like, why, why is this happening? <laughs> why, why, why am I saying this? Why am I doing all this work? What is the point of right. this? Right, so the, I literally, here's how I took it in as sort of the other sidekick. 
um, was that this character literally appears on like a talk show discussing this quirky ability he has like a sideshow freak. Um, And the monologue is strictly and only about why and how he's able to do this trick. It doesn't bleed off into anything else and reveal. It doesn't reveal anything. And so it is, it's a false, it's a a bait and switch, right? Right. Uh, You have the false vulnerability. Yes. Right. So Suddenly, you're, oh, you this this like you you get to have this like heartfelt moment, but it's not real. So as an actor, pumping that up and creating like to try to make that more than just words exposition, you know, I did my best. And it's funny um, when you're like, you should we should go back and, and reread the script. And I couldn't find the script, but I went back and I reread because I'm narcissistic reviews yeah. to see what the critics said about yeah. the play, and they said a lot of the same things. And to be perfectly honest. I got, I got very good yeah. reviews and all mentioned, but mostly they mentioned me because they mentioned that I did the best that I could with, un, with the fact that there was nothing yeah. there. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and, I, yeah. and the character of Meryl, who I played had even less. Um, and, you know, to add insult to injury, she could sing. She was literally a right. singer. <laughs> so. Right. And, right. And this is right. Oh God! I remember the actress who that's played my dog. It. If I, you hear it in the background, can't do anything about it. Excellent. The actress who the actress who um, played uh, Meryl in the production that I was in, who's a fantastic actress in a very different um, love her. And I, I I remember her struggling with the the music scenes, not because she felt like she couldn't sing, but because it's like, what am I? What am I playing? What am I now? Am I am I simply in a club doing a song? Does it have some more meaning? Does it apply? Like, what am I doing? Am I? I mean, is it? Can it be that this play is as dance clown dance towards its minority characters as it feels when you're in it? Because it felt like dance clown dance. Oh, it absolutely felt that way. And in fact, it didn't do it very well. And yes, so this idea that not only is Meryl the sort of best friend who gets trashed by the end of the play because her husband cheats on her with her best friend, I also am a lounge singer. And the second act opens up with these two or three songs, um, really for no reason. Um, I found a way to make it about the relationship with the husband, I guess. But you know, again, that's just an actor doing the work to try to justify right. something that's not there, you know? hundred percent. Like when I was doing that monologue, I tried to make it about my uh, apparent loneliness. Yes. Right. I tried to make it about the fact that I've replaced my loneliness or I replaced my need for relationships with my focus on this career which, thing, which is like just me pumping up actor crap. Which is another trope, right? The idea of the lonely, gay... Uh, I'm so tired of being, I'm just tired of being, and I know that it's not just about sex, but I'm tired of queer people being sexless. I, I feel as if the playwright was, what happens is the playwright was using our characters as a device. I think the yep. aspect of um, Alan being gay had to do with, again, trying to reflect to the audience that Jane was cool. Jane has a gay friend. Jane has a black friend. She's going to make a horrible decision and um, destroy the friendship by her choice. But she's cool. <laughs> but remember, right, everybody remember, she's ultimately a cool person because she lets black people and queer people in right. her life. Right. Right. Um, yes. Ooh. I mean, that's that's actually so insidious. It's so insidious because it's. I would I would psychologically, I would doubt that the playwright of this successful play did that deliberately. What's insidious is that it's innate in their thinking that 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 that, like, oh, this person will be black. I don't think they thought, well, uh, we'll make this character black so that people will feel less, uh, less mad. I think it's in, it's it's deeper than that. It's more like a yeah. foundational. It's the same thing with queer people. Not you know. It's the same thing with like um whenever whenever there's discussions about queer people, which I'm so bored with straight people discussing my lives or my rights or where I can pee or what I can do. It's always queer people. Our stories are always about sex, and heterosexual stories are always about love. Right. So even when you write us. You give us zero 
we get no relationships because then you'd have to deal with the sex that you're so afraid that we're having. If you actually gave somebody a relationship and it's like, if you would actually write a, a black character who was a fully realized character living in the world of the play, there'd be a lot more to say than what they're well, allowed to more. say. And I remember, um, and there's no time for it in that, in, in that, that narrative. narrative. And like, so the thing with Meryl too, I remember so well, there's one moment where it's acknowledged, like she gets any agency as a black woman. And it's when, um, uh, the character of Jane and Alan are going back and forth about something that's kind of like trivial and from the back of the scene, literally, where I haven't, as Meryl said, anything up until then, um, I say, it must be so hard to be white. And that was like, Ugh. that even is a moment where I'm sure the playwright was like, ha, look at me. Also, I think subconsciously made everybody feel better about themselves, right? Because like what these two white characters were talking about was so sort of like self-involved, narcissistic, whatever, especially because there was some element of race in it. And so then for Mer uh, Meryl to say that, it sort of gave them a pass. And everyone breaks all the tension. And I think the thing is, is that you're so right. This isn't malicious, right? But it is, it is subconscious. And it is um, the way a playwright feels as if they're being inclusive when in fact they're not, right? So uh, I need to, I want to make sure that, you know, my play is diverse and, you know, I have more than just white characters. I don't want to be, you know, accused of just writing white characters. So I'm going to bring in these other, you know, characters like Meryl or Alan, but I'm not going to give them any true life i'm going to use them as a device to be shit on um i'm going to relieve or alleviate any guilt i have about the actions of the lead character by having right. it yep. happen to the one black character in the show right i even think there's a there's a, a microaggression in that show that is less obvious but actor-wise the the ice cream melting scene why are you saddled with that why is meryl saddled with that fucking scene i found it so annoying that she's this character has to be she's cheated on she's trying to be a good friend but she's trying to understand what grief does but also she's been cheated on everything's about this white woman and then in the scene where they have this they have that scene in the park and you have to have ice cream and it's in the script that she's eating this ice cream and it's melting why are you saddling that character what, what is that about? I found, I found that particularly offensive. I found it like, why would you, why would you do that to an actor? Why? Yeah, you think so that's this is clever? how it breaks down. So the scene before, Tom goes to Jane's place, confesses his love in the lobby, and literally they back up into the apartment and have sex just off stage, and you hear them moaning and groaning. Right. Next scene, cut to Jane and Meryl on a park bench with um, Meryl's baby, because... That's the other thing about Meryl is she has almost no likable traits in this place. She's um, a bitch to her husband. She's right. um, totally right. stressed out. Which is another, which was another yep. sort of way of excusing his behavior. And uh, we're sitting there and we have ice cream cones and um, we're eating ice cream. And the, that's the whole joke is, you know, Jane doesn't touch her ice cream and it melts in her hand and then it falls on the ground. But that whole scene Jane subtext is that she's just cheated or she's just had sex with her best friend's husband. And the, the friend doesn't know yet. Meryl doesn't know yet. So she's throwing all of these weird, like, um, ideas and theories and trying to work it out in her brain and assuage her guilt. And, um, Meryl's trying to be there for her unbeknownst to her that all of this angst is coming from the fact that she just had sex with, Meryl's husband. Meryl's husband. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, there's so much loaded onto that character, onto Meryl's character that seems, I mean, not that Jane as a character doesn't have her struggles, obviously, because the play is ultimately about grief and community. And so, uh, but at the expense, at the expense of the people in her life, like, I mean, it just annoyed me so much. The, the assumption that straight people have, 
or that white people have of that we only exist when you see us is damaging. Queer people had sex and relationships in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 1820s. We did. You may not have seen it because we couldn't safely do it in front of you, but that doesn't mean we... So your assumption that we don't have relationships and that every queer person pre-1969 was quietly, sadly living by themselves or with their mother or something like that, um, waiting for queer liberation is absolutely a lie. Right. Right. If I'm, if you're going to hire me to play a queer person, my characters get fucked. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? My, my characters have a life outside of what you, if I'm going to play one of those characters, whether you like it or not, I'm bringing in energy. Whether you like a playwright or whether you like a director, fire me if you don't like it, honest and true, no hard feelings. But I'm not playing someone who doesn't have a life outside of your limited vision so of who we are. So now tell me, though, because I love that. But then how, so, and you've said it a number of times, and I think it's important for anybody listening who's a writer, right? Because, like, partly what we're talking about is, like, say for a playwright who's like, I want to make sure that I'm not just writing white characters, but it's like, make sure you're also not doing what I call playwriting hacks, which is... This is a hack. And so the hack of having Merle be black and, you know, have one line where she says it must be so hard to be white or whatever. But how do you, I mean, if you have a character like Alan that literally seems to only exist when he is in proximity to the heterosexual people in his life, right? Right. How? If it's not written, how would you infuse it? Or are you saying, I mean, it's not possible. Like, like, um, with Alan, I found it impossible because she wrote in his loneliness, right? Which is a trope that I'm so tired of. Why, why, why is Alan lonely? Isn't it, isn't it, doesn't it make Jane a cooler character if her queer friend who has a full life in-laws, a partner, um, maybe children of his own, doesn't it make, doesn't make Jane cooler if that person takes time yes. out of his life to come yes, and come for her? Now, it's not like I don't know lonely gay guys, but it's like, don't, don't cast me if that's what you want. Because how do I infuse that? I infuse it with my own backstory. I infuse it with my own. Um, I'm very specific nice. about costuming. Don't defect mm. me. I'm, uh, I take a lot of, this is going to sound crappy, but I spend a lot of time to make sure that I'm a, a fairly good shape for a person my age. And, um, which in the queer community, sadly, or not whatever has a, a, a thing. And so don't de-sex me. And I think about sex as if it's just about sex. I'm saying it because since sex is the one thing that everyone thinks separates queer mm. people from straight people, you don't then get to take it away from me. Because you think you're being, because you think you're being liberal or something like that. Don't take away of the fullness of an existence. I, I know that queer sex still makes, Molly Brennan always says, queer sex is effortless rebellion. And I know that it makes everyone uncomfortable. It makes everyone uncomfortable, not you and I, obviously, but like it makes people uncomfortable when, when queer people, it's like asking uh, trans people about their oh. genitalia, right? Everybody wants to know, but it makes everybody uncomfortable. Well, you don't get to be uncomfortable and then cut it out of my story and then make it a part of the story. It's got, it's got to be to on our terms. Or I don't want to be. You don't get to control my narrative. And there's so many times where it's true. I mean, I've been an actor in this town for almost 30 years. And one time, in one show, I was the guy that got the guy. Well, and that's the thing. And so, because um, there's so much there that you said, I love the stuff about, uh, just again, like, um, yes, like, I want to understand your marginalization, but I want to understand it on my terms. On my terms. And even, and like you said, not maliciously, what if, you know, I, I have this expression where I say different brains, different bodies, different brains, different bodies. And to assume that anybody else understands what's going on in our head without explicitly explaining, explaining it to them, whether it's a concept or it's a physical thing that I do it this way or I think it this way. Nobody understands anybody else. Everyone has a different brain and a different body. So like you said, I don't know if it's malicious, but I think like if you think that you're going to try to understand my marginalization and you think you can do it just using your brain that's the disconnect well and also um just because we're saying it's not malicious again isn't the past it also is the same conversation between like um people always sort of want to 
say, well, overt racism versus covert racism and which is worse, right? And to some degree, overt racism is better <laughs> because it's the... Right, because at least I know where I stand. Right. Same thing with homophobia. Yeah. I know so where I stand. It's the same idea. Like, just because we're saying it's not malicious, it doesn't mean it doesn't need to be reckoned with, doesn't mean that it's problematic or that you're still not responsible for changing it because... Yes. It's that concept of um, intent versus impact, right? It's like, I get that your intent wasn't to be malicious, but guess what? Yeah. It still hurts. It's still infuriating. And it's still, to be perfectly honest you, with you, and this is the word, this is the insult that I, I for me, carries the most weight, boring. Uh, when you're writing a play and you're a queer people or BIPOC people, and you're not part of that group or part of one group and not part of another group, do you have the courage as my friend Mick Napier says, to not bore me. Do you have the- Oh my God, I love that. Right? Can you, do you have the bravery to not be boring, to <laughs> challenge your own assumptions and knowledge and go step further? Because otherwise it's just boring to us. Yeah. And, and so um, I want, we will talk about the, the character that you mentioned because in a bit, that's one of the questions I want to ask. I want to harken back really quick to the bench scene because it's similar to your experience with the monologue that you were given. Um, that, uh, that scene is so hard to act. And I never felt like I got it right. I, in fact, later, a friend of I and I were just workshopping different scenes just to keep sharp. I brought that scene back to work on with them because I never cracked that scene. And I think it's because it's terribly written yeah. and it's kind of just, it doesn't serve any real purpose. It's cruel is what it is. Cruel scene because the audience is watching this whole time that this white woman has just had sex with this other woman's husband. And it's the other woman who's trying to help the perpetrator. It is a cruel scene. And it's like, this is somewhat, you know, healing for me because the truth is uh, I, I could never figure it out. And to be quite honest, I thought it was my acting. I was like. The actress I know who, who you also know, who we love. We could say, I mean, all love and praise. So, so much love and praise. And I think. To Lily. Ask Lily. I think that she would. Have you ever had a discussion about that scene with Lily? No. Because I would. This is just my memory of it because we, we got quite close. I think, she, I don't want to speak for her, but I think she had similar problems with that scene. Yeah. And, and I think in the same way, thought it was her acting. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I mean, that could, that's a whole other discussion about uh, our agency as, as actors. At what point do we finally, as professionals go, I'm telling you that this scene is badly written. And yes. you either believe, like if it were Tennessee Williams and you could tell me to fuck off, Trust me when I tell you, as a professional who has spent years putting words in my mouth and then spitting them back out and trying to make them real so that audiences believe what I'm saying, so that I believe what I'm saying, I'm telling you this is badly written. Yeah. Well, the whole play. And the truth is, what's even worse, you know, then, you know, when Meryl finds out, the entire scene is played for, like, kooky laughs. It's sort of like... Um, right, like some sort of Neil Simon thing all of a sudden. Yes, and the final moment of healing is for Jane. And nobody ever finds out what happens between Meryl and Tom, who literally just had a baby with this man, right? So, uh, yeah, it's cruel. And I have to say, so um, I also did this play at a very specific time in my life where, you know, now I think people know what they're getting. When they work with me, I'm immersed in anti-racism work, teaching it. Um, advocating for it. Uh, but I was, I hadn't figured that out yet when I did that play. And I was very accustomed to living and moving in white spaces. And I missed a lot of what was happening to me during that experience that um, was really hurtful. And I, I'm, I, this is the part that I'm like, I've never talked about this and I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to share this experience, but I've hesitated because I'm not a vengeful person. I'm not a person, I don't, you know, I may have receipts, but I'm not necessarily the person to air them publicly. Yeah. But a couple of things happened that I want to share with you because I, I feel 
comfortable doing it. So, so the, the um, husband in the play is white, by the way, if we hadn't made that clear. Um, and they just had this baby. So, and the baby is in the play, right? Um, but anyway, so it became very important to me very quickly that whatever fake baby we found was biracial, mm-hmm. <laughs> looked biracial. And I realized it was the, the new me, the, the anti-racist activist me, who, after posing a question like, why is Meryl Black to crickets? Yeah, crickets. There was something in me saying, you've got to fight for this. You've got to fight for your fucking identity on this stage. And you are not going to carry around a white looking baby. (laughs) And I started making this known. And the actress who I was playing opposite, Jane, also was in a power position in this dynamic. I'll leave it at that. And, uh, She was so dismissive of this request because what it meant was it was going to cost money to find a baby. I mean, these fake babies are, you know, to make them look real. I guess they're expensive. And they have weight so that you don't have to act the weight of the baby. Exactly. So they're not cheap. Um, And that's a very specific request. But I was immediately dismissed. Or in fact, it was summer. So she, I think she said some variation of, look, I'm, I'm as dark as you. As a reason why she didn't have to honor this request. Um, this same person is the person who, because I was in this play, made it, kept telling me that they were using my face in all of their advertising, not just for the play that we were doing, but for the company, because they were trying to draw diverse audiences and whatever efforts they had made on that, they felt comfortable telling me I'm using you to draw without paying you. Without paying you, but you know, so I was, I was the face of the show outside this other image that was on the poster, but of any of the ads, and um, they were specifically focusing on various markets, sh- saying to them, "Look, there's a black act, there's black people here in our show and in our season. Come see our shows, right?" Now it's and and they had been making some effort to be diverse, but it was just interesting to me that not only were they doing that very strategically and purposefully, but that she felt that she could tell me that. And there was nothing wrong with it. And I'll never forget my friend, who's still a friend now, who played my husband. I remember him, her, she kept what she kept saying it, like she was so proud of it. And he was walking behind me, behind her in the dressing room. And he just had this look on his face, like, like he recognized how problematic it was that she was saying and telling me this. And I, I hadn't woke up yet completely because again, I've spent my life navigating white spaces, which means I've sent my life, spent my life in survival mode. Yes. I mean, um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't like to equate the two things as equate meaning equal, but um, the metaphors can be the same about navigating straight spaces as a queer person and always yeah. feeling like you have to apologize. I mean, I, the number of times in my life I've said, I hope this isn't too gay. I mean, not to be too gay. I'm so fucking done with that. Sure. Right? In a way that like, I'm, I'm trying to say this. It's, it's offensive. It's offensive to me on so many levels. And one of them is because your MO as a, as a performer and as a, a human and as a, a personality here in Chicago is as an intellectual, right? As this very smart woman. This, and so I think she thinks she could get away with it because you're going to intellectualize yourself out of the blackness part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And that she can, have, I can have a rational conversation with this um, intellectual black woman. Do you see what I'm saying? Like the inherent yeah. racism in it against someone that she maybe doesn't think of as, as intellectual or as, reasonable or as do you see what i'm saying like it's i it, think so i so think she can so get away, she can get away with because tanya will understand tanya's a smart person before she's a black person oh yeah you see what i'm saying and it's like no i'm a i'm a i'm a black person it's like i'm a queer person yeah I'm a lot of things but 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 i i have to navigate through this world as other and that comes almost always comes first that almost always comes first and i'm i you know we have, my husband and I have joked 
that if Tanya today was in that play and this person treated me that way, I probably wouldn't have finished the run. No, you probably would have quit. And that's the thing. Maybe this is a post uh, shutdown of our industry too. It's like, I, I don't want to be in spaces like that anymore. And if I find, and I'm saying this now and I, hopefully maybe you can keep me accountable of this. If I find myself in a situation where I'm uncomfortable, I feel like the powers that be aren't listening. I'm going to walk. And if it means I don't get to work anymore in Chicago because I become labeled as difficult, then I'm actually okay with it in this this world. Because if we don't actually, and Mitchell, Mitchell 10 years ago would not have had the wherewithal. Well, that's the thing. It's like, um, I have, I have pledged as well in various conversations, um, with other theater folks, like, I am, I will no longer show up in spaces and not be my full self. I will show up as my authentic self. Yes. And that means if you say something to me or something, I witness something, I am, it's going to be through the lens of who I am, period. Not who I am in white spaces, not who I am. You know what I mean? And, um, I wasn't there yet then. And, um, I've never completely come to terms with it because I've never really spoken about it, but it's like, and there were more things, you know, the hair fascination, the, um, just comments and microaggressions. And, um, it was just a really difficult situation. And, uh, I just think it's interesting that it was also within the context of this play, right? Where it was a character who was not allowed to be, who was not allowed to be fully realized either. You know what I mean? Yes. I don't think, and that's the point is that I don't think these are accidents. As long as people are unchallenged in their unconscious, yeah, unconscious malicious behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like we said, we don't want to assign deliberate maliciousness, although I'm sure that there is some, but let's not, let's say we're, we're, we're assuming that it's not deliberate, like to add insult to injury, to then expect me in that space, discussing this piece of work to not challenge it. Absolutely, absolutely right. not. Well, and that's so interesting because in my, in my situation, that was not only would I, because I wasn't completely awake, if it was just actor, actor, maybe I would have said right. something, but it was the artistic director of the theater. Yeah. So there was a power dynamic. Yes. Yes. And a major power dynamic. And they were, it was, it was um, a hostile work environment where yeah. I was uncomfortable and I would talk to my husband about it after and just be like, I don't know where to turn with this. And, and I knew I didn't have, um, I wouldn't have support from uh, the director because of that lead balloon reaction in the room when I said, why is Merle black? It's, and it is interesting how it coincides with, I mean, I don't want to assign any sort of malicious intent to people who choose this play in the first place, because right. listen, the production I did, the person who chose the play, I, I love this play person very much and often what they're searching for is a play with six or less characters because yeah. it's a small theater and they have so many equity contracts and right. so and then oh look this play is becoming popular and whatever and it's talking about all these things and on the surface of it there's a black person and there's, there's a, a person, you know uh and you know i do give the uh, director credit for actually casting a queer person as a queer person because I, I i want to say i want to say something about that if you don't mind it's a little bit of a please, tangent i want to say please. something about that because queer people can pass, meaning come across the straight if they want to, so they can stay in the closet for their careers and all that sort of stuff. There's this thing where like everybody, you know, what does it matter if it's a gay guy or a straight guy? And I'm like, okay, first of all, all things being equal, that would be fine. Listen, all things being equal, everybody could play everybody all the time about anything, right? Because then who cares? Because everybody's getting the ch- all the same chances. We know that's not true. But here's my thing about why queer queer actors can play straight and straight actors can't play queer is because we as queer people grow up with every possible version of every possible image of heterosexual behavior, uncoded, unabashed, unhidden, un, unsecretive in every possible. So we see it every day. There's no reason for heteronormative couples to code or hide anything. 
And so we're inundated. We've done the research just by opening our eyes every day. The absolute opposite is not true. That, that straight guy got cast as a gay guy, has he had sex with a man? Because so many queer people have had heteronormative sex because they thought they were supposed to. So many of us had relationships before we came out. So we've had the experience. We've seen, do you see us in our private moments? Oh, no, you haven't. But we don't have to because your private moments are every television show. So it infuriates me. It absolutely infuriates me, that discussion. It's like, well, actors should play everything. I was like, yeah, but all things being equal. And we, we have studied your lives every day. And so when theaters don't cast queer actors, especially in this town when there's so many talented queer actors and they cast, it's infuriating to me. Understandably, understandably, especially in this, like you said, in this community, you know, I, um, it's like when people say we had to cast the best person, but it's oh, we don't cast a Puerto Rican as a Puerto Rican in this town that's like, you know, 60%, 70% people of color. And they're like, well, we couldn't, this was the best person. It's like, no. And that's a tool of white supremacy. So that excuse, we couldn't find them. We, we put up a, a, an announcement and nobody came. Or we just, you know, they just didn't have the experience. That's bullshit. That's a tool of white supremacy. I agree with you. The authenticity that they will bring will make up for whatever, quote unquote, lack of experience you have decided that they have. Exactly. So the second part of what I want to sort of talk about based on this idea of, um, you know, these characters that I also really believe, this is my dog, Theo. Hi, Hi, Theo. you know, uh, who have main character energy, who, if I could, I'd rather see a play about them, the 20 minutes that they get versus the people who are actually the leads. But I asked you to think about um, media, film, television, plays, where there are some of those characters that you would love to um, actually see entire stories on. And partly I asked you that, number one, because you kind of made reference to this, and I'll ask you to tell this story in a second. Um, <clears throat> your character in The Red Line is a character who had main character energy, who I would, would rather have seen an entire um, series about your character and your husband and the husband that you lost um, you know, whatever, not necessarily over yeah. the Noah Wiley character. But so the Red Line is a show who had who had one season yeah, on, CBS. Um, on CBS based in Chicago. I loved it. I love the experience. I love the writers. And this is a diss of no one. But uh, I said to Noah Wiley, who is a head of. I know I'm, I'm setting you up for this story because it's amazing. We became, you know, I figured I got nothing to lose. I'm playing this gay guy. They want authentic casting and they're casting, you know, these two gay guys to play these two gay guys who are the best friends of this couple. And both Noah Wiley and the guy who played his husband, they're not, either of them are gay. Neither of them are gay, but they're playing gay characters. Right. Right. Because the husband who's dead uh, in real time had this flashbacks he has seen. Um, And also a a black man, which is sort of the impetus for the storyline. But I only, I, I, so I'm on set with Noah Wiley, who, by the way, is a great guy and an ally, um, and heard me uh, because we had this one day, and I really, we only had one day of filming. It's because of him that that scene that you're talking about, because of him, that's why that scene was written, because he demanded it. So he was using his privilege for, for good. But I said to him, why are you playing this part? <laughs> I figured I got nothing to lose, right? And he's right. a famous guy. And we, we very quickly clicked as like two, yeah. Jews of, two old Jews of a certain age. And I, I was like, what are you, why you? I can think of like five out gay actors who, no offense, have as big a career as you do right now that could be playing this part. And he's like, I, you know what? I, I honestly, I turned it down four times. My wife was like, this is such a good script. They want you to do it. They want you to do it. And, you know, he does have some TV cachet, which I, I, I get. And so he said, well, what don't I know? I was like, all right, well, like I explained the thing about like, we, there's no secrets about your intimate lives. What do you know about ours? I'm sure that he grew up with queer people in his life. He grew up in the theater. Of course he does. I said, well, for example, who's the top, who's the bottom in your current relationship and in your relationship, in your, in your marriage, do you know? Because a queer person would know. Jeff and I, who are playing husbands, we know. We've discussed what the dynamic is. Not that it matters and not that it can't be versatile, but we know 
And yeah. it affects the way a couple relates to each other. It yep. affects the, the, the way in which we assign roles to each other, not in a heteronormative way, in our own way. So your yeah. heteronormative brain deciding you know how gay couples interact in a dynamic is not true. No. And it's not real. And, and so, based on stereotypes. It's based on stereotypes. that may Because not, that's all you have. That's all you have. And it may not be harmful stereotypes, right. but they're right. stereotypes nonetheless. And so he and I got into a quote. He's like, all right, well, what do you think? And I was like, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I sort of challenged him to put himself in that situation. You know, what is, what is the dynamic of this relationship, you know? And uh, so we had a lot of discussion about it. And then eventually he sort of like really uh, pushed the writers to write this scene for us. It's a stunning scene between um, the main character and Mitchell's character. And uh, well, I'll share it. Like I'll, um, oh, cool. Yeah. When, uh, I think it's I'll on, make sure. put it on YouTube. It is on YouTube. I put it on YouTube. Yeah. Oh, great. Cool. So I can get the clip. It's a gorgeous scene. I remember texting you about the scene and there's also this wonderful shot of you in a crowd scene where you're looking at your friend and I'm like, everybody wants their friend to look at them that way. But, um, and essentially you get to share um, a, a piece of your interior life about grief and it's revealed that your uh, first husband had passed. And, and it's something that sidekicks don't often get to do. No, Even no. Like the lead character is queer to like express, like you said, like what would the, what would the show about that character and my husband's character be like? What would that story well, it's, be like? It was so gorgeous. I felt, I was like, I want to learn everything about the first husband. I want to learn everything about how they um, negotiate with each other, blah, 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 blah. And um, that's because it was coming from a man who had had a lived experience as a gay man, as a gay friend, as a gay man who has sex, as a gay man who has experienced grief of no, other gay men. Right, of other gay men, a community, right? Like a fully- That it carried, the ancestors were behind you in that moment. It's yes, 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 yes. That we all have ancestors. We're not, I mean, and, and this is, seems such an obvious point, but hey, playwrights, um, whether you're um, uh, a queer BIPOC playwright uh, who is just right using shorthand, or you're a, uh, a white heteronormative playwright using shorthand. Um, we are not tropes. Nope. We are not tropes. We are human beings and our lives are huge. And just because you can't see it because we have to hide it from you because we're not allowed to, whether it's cultural or, or, or um, uh, gender or, or, or sexuality or whatever it is, a race that you don't get invited you don't get invited to the gay bar and we don't get invited to the barbecue. And so just because you're not invited doesn't mean it doesn't happen. There's so much more happening for us. Yeah. And it's that specificity and it's the fact that it was true. <clears throat> it was telling the truth under imaginary circumstances. But, okay. So the other thing I wanted to bring up because this proves of our archives of um, sharing the same archives are, um, is a character who I wish had made, was a main character who I could have watched an entire um, uh, series on is Peter Frechette in 30 something. You just talking <laughs> last night. What? I was just talking about Peter last night. See, it's meant to be. And you had posted something about him once and we had a back and forth. I think he's brilliant. I agree with you. That, that couple should have yes. had their own show. And not only didn't they get their own show, that, that, but when ABC tried to... Uh, rerun it in the summer like people used to do before there was content all the advertisers pulled out they oh, no. they're in bed together yep they're not having sex and when they tried to rerun that episode in 1980 something wow all the advertisers pull, pulled out of it and they couldn't rerun it wow because yeah so it's 30 something um there's this character, I want to say his name is Russell, but I'm not sure if that's true, but David Marshall Grant, who's yeah. an actor I love, he played the best friend of Melissa, the cousin, I believe, um, in the show. And, um, you know, they would, they would occasionally, it, he was very much existing sort of for her at yeah. first, as gay tropes do. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, a boyfriend is introduced. And then all of a sudden, they have this groundbreaking scene um, a first time in television history, I believe, mm -hmm. two gay men in bed. Well, and they didn't have shirts on. 
I think I think you're right. They didn't have shirts on, or like a right. top or something like that. Right. And, um, but the character that Rupert Everett played in My Best Friend's Wedding, right? Okay. Like that guy deserves his own. Who's that guy? One hundred percent. What setting? James Bond like fabulous queer, uh, both masculine and feminine at the same time. Like yep. ideal of. I mean, where, where's then there's characters that should have been queer, like Fraser's brother, right? In Hello. Or, um, or Anthony from Designing Women, right? Why wasn't that right. here, right? It's like... Yeah, that makes so much sense. I, that's a very interesting thing to explore as well. I will... Look, let's end this okay. with... You're sharing the story of, number one, the one time you got to be the romantic oh. lead. And I wonder if that also sort of fell in the arena of one of the times where you felt most sort of realized in a portrayal of a character. So what play was that? 100%. And it's so perfect. I mean, talk about King of Segway, King, <laughs> King of Wrapping Up, is that it was uh, um, the gift about face. Oh. Which is almost 30 years ago now. The one time. I've got one here. time. So there's a bunch of reasons for it. Um, that was a queer theater about face and it was a script written by Eric Rosen and there were a, a lesbian couple and a, and a gay male couple and a mom. Those were the characters. And uh, I was sort of a surrogate for Eric Rosen. Uh, the character was, uh, who was the playwright. And I, I get it. I'm not, I'm a character actor. So I don't, you know, I, my boyfriend thinks I'm very attractive and so do my friends and family, but I'm not the guy that walks into the, uh, I'm not going up for parts with Brad Pitt. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'm a different type. So I, I get that I'm not seen as the romantic lead, but uh, people who look like me have romantic lives, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So occasionally um, we, sh we should be allowed to have them. And so th in that play, it was about this awkward Jewish guy who meets this gorgeous, 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 you know, air quotes, like stereotypically gorgeous guy. And, we end up together. <laughs> and I'll never forget it as long as I live. In fact, the actor who played him passed away fairly recently. And um, um, he understood that this for me, because he, he could come across the street, so he could play a romantic lead. He did get yeah. this feeling, and I never did. And he, he took such, uh, his name Brian. Do you remember Brian? Oh, Brian. Oh, my God. I love Brian. He took care of me. And it did feel Brian Goodman. Yes, Brian Goodman. And it felt very, rest his soul, it felt very empowering. He, he very much understood that this was a thing for me. Um, and mm -hmm. A thing for people who look like me, meaning like oh, not a stereotypical uh, handsome person. And so it, it did feel very good to be the romantic lead. It felt very good to get the guy. It felt very good to do all of these very normative things, not heteronormative, just normative things that I'm doing anyway in my life, but that the, 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 the world of playwrights or screenwriters don't see us doing. Like, for example, the Rupert Everett character in How Come He Doesn't Have a... How Come He Didn't Bring His Partner With? He, that guy doesn't Excuse have a partner. Me. Yeah, right? Yeah, you know, it's so, so much of what you're saying. Um, and just to sort of prove our theory, who wrote this play? A gay Jewish man. Hmm. Right. The other thing is, I'm struck by the fact that you say that was 30 years ago, because I have a similar thing where my first experience, well, actually, gosh, I just realized. Maybe I, I, I'm just now realizing that I would say that the time I have felt most included and a part of a collective was when I did the song of Jacob Zulu a million years ago um, at Steppenwolf Theater. Cut to what I'm about to get back into, which is School Girls are the um, African Mean Girls play, which is another time where I feel a sense of belonging I have never felt before. Um, and that is almost 20, 25 years apart as well. So we all have, you know, there is work to be done here, folks. There's work to be done. There's work to be done. And, you know, I hate to be a naysayer because I don't, I don't, that's a fine balance because there has been so much progress and I'm a very lucky person in that I've been able to live a life where I walk around as an authentically queer person wherever I go. And I feel empowered to do that for many, many reasons. Many of them are privileged that I acknowledge. Uh, but I'm lucky in that way that I, I, that I get to, I've created a life. I don't live in, you know, the 
back roads of Iowa somewhere where I have to yeah. hide my authenticity. And so there have been strides. There's places where I can go. But this, there's, there's so many, there's so much more to do. There's so much more to do that like to get authentic stories told, to get authentic stories told. I mean, aren't people bored with the same goddamn Apparently stories? Not. I mean, thanks. We all want to see ourselves reflected. I mean, there's this idea that like white people aren't going to go see that movie because they can't relate to it because it's a black movie. They're not going to go see this movie because it's for, because it's a chick flick. They're not going to go see this movie because it's about gay people. And it's like, well, the rest of us are expected to see all the movies because that's all we because get. By the way, also, that's a whole narrative that's set up on catering to white people as opposed to, you know, who will go see a show about black people, black people. And there's lots of us. Yes, exactly. The same thing. Queer people make a movie about queer people. We'll go see it because guess what? Right. But also we have to make sure that like white people are going to see black movies, of black movies, people are going to see queer movies, queer people are going to see black movies. You know what I'm saying? Like we have to make sure that we have to figure out a way that store that we understand that storytelling is universal period. And the more specific, not general, the more specific, the more specific something is, the more universal Amen. it is. Amen. Amen. Mitchell J. Fane. <laughs> Ladies, gentlemen. And I hate saying ladies and gentlemen, that's one of the worst things to say in terms of inclusion. I was, um, was going to say, somebody, I heard somebody say it quite beautifully the other day, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in Well, between. that's exactly right. Yeah. I was like, what's the, what's the tagline there? Because ladies and gentlemen doesn't work anywhere, but I like that. So ladies and gentlemen, and everyone in between, Mitchell J. Fain, um, this is brilliant. I love you. I knew this would be brilliant. You so Thank you for... Um, fulfilling my long-term goal of having you on the show and of course there are other things we could have discussed so maybe i'll have you back because there's still like more to dig into and uncover with this oh please share everybody where they can find you on social media and a little bit about the queer view well if you look for me on um i'm mjf 1066 on instagram i'm mitchell j fain on facebook um check out midnightcircus.com come see the circus our circus uh will be uh september through october and all of all the proceeds go back to the parks. Awesome. Queer View. Yeah, Queer View is on. Um, we try to do it weekly. We're taking a hiatus because Ms. Billings is being famous in London yeah. right now. But Queer View, look um, on Alexandra Billings' page on Instagram. We go live uh, generally. Yeah, and you week. can look in her, um, her archives yeah, for story. a bunch of them. They're brilliant, inspiring, fantastic mm-hmm. conversations. I love you. I'm going to see you in person soon. You. Be good. Bye. Bye. Maybe it'll be alright. Maybe you're all wrong. Amazing race. Thank you, Lord. Bobblehead. Show the pop. Work a lot. It's never sweet. Yes, it is. No, it's not. This whole flock is not ready. Yes, it is.